Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Exit buying opportunity. As political tensions weigh on UK stocks, none other than Merrin Somerset Webb makes the case for unloved UK equities. Who are the biggest winners and losers on the FTSE this year? Russ Mould from AJ Bell joins me to run through the list. And is the small claims court a better bet for claiming redress than the Ombudsman Service? Welcome to the FT Money Show, the FT's weekly podcast about personal finance and investing. I'm Claire Barrett, FT Money Editor, bringing you all of this week's money news. Merrin Somerset Webb, our columnist, requires no introduction from me, quite frankly. She was pretty much a lone voice in the FT before the referendum as a columnist who advocated voting leave. And her column in FT Money last week about how she became a Brexiteer has attracted a record-breaking number of comments, even by Merrin standards. So she joins me on the line now to talk about how she thinks the disruption that many fear lies ahead for us in 2019 could actually translate into a possible buying opportunity for investors in UK shares. Welcome, Merrin. Hi, Claire. So I'm just going to read out the intro to your column for anybody who is stupid enough to miss it at the weekend. You say, in early 2015, I spent an hour interviewing Nick Clegg. He turned me into a leave voter. Discuss. He did. I mean, I'm using poor Nick here as a, you know, a representative of a different way of thinking to my way of thinking. You know, one of the things that we talked about in that interview was, um, well, back in 2015, he was talking about the way it is in the modern world, there's so much that you can't control with the national government. So you can't control global trade, you can't control international crime, you can't control climate change, etc., etc. All these things, he says, have to be dealt with by a global decision-making body, not Westminster. And he used this, this phrase when we were talking he said, you know, Westminster is, a, is basically a fictional universe, one in which lots of people think they have loads of power, but really, in fact, most power has either been shoved up or shoved down to the local level. And so, you know, people who feel that they're in charge of countries aren't really in charge of countries. Now, in my view on that is different. Nick, Nick thinks, that, thinks that that is an, an inevitable and perfectly reasonable way for the world to go. But I don't think that in the main works for people. It's absolutely true. Of course, you have to have global cooperation on these big issues. But what you can't have, I think, if you want people to remain happy inside their democracies, is global agencies telling people what to do, telling them you must do this, you have to do this, and your national government is secondary 
to our organization. That doesn't work for people. It doesn't work for me. And I don't think it works for an awful lot of other people around the world as well. This kind of globalization or globalization of authority that takes over democracy. So there's a disagreement here in the way that people think about how the world and how nations should be governed. And it was my conversation with Nick that, that, that clarified these thoughts for me, made me realize that I don't want a global government of any kind. I really do want to continue to live within a self-governing nation state that cooperates on big issues rather than is ordered around on big issues. So that's, that's the difference. And that's one of the sort of core drivers between my original vote for leave. And just expanding that slightly for, for in investment purposes, mm. another one of these big global forces which has been dominating us for nearly a decade now has been the central banks and their programme of quantitative easing after the financial yeah. crisis. Now, you say in the same column that move from QE to QT, um, quantitative tightening, has been one of the biggest changes um, for investors well, absolutely. And one of the things I, I say in the column is, that, is, you know, let's try and think. And very few people are, who commented on this article, by the way, agree with me on this. But <laughs> what I wrote was, let me ask you to think of the EU as being the governments rather as quantitative easing as to fund managers, something that does a lot of the heavy lifting for you, whether you want it to or not, leaving you to grandstand around the edges so you think you have power. But actually, most of the real decisions are outside your control, taken by somebody else. And that's exactly what has happened with QE in that over the last 10 years, this has been the only really important important thing in markets. How much money is being printed? How's it working? How's it transmitting its way to the markets? And that's pushed everything up. I mean, it's really unusual, remember, to have stock markets, in fact, all asset prices, give or take, go up for nine years in a row. Mm. This doesn't happen very often. It's happened over the last nine years, until this year, obviously. And that has meant that, you know, most fund managers have done just fine without really having to do anything at all. Now, the withdrawal of that dynamic is, you know, pretty much the same as the, the withdrawal of an external government for a country. Suddenly, you're on your own. You know, now you have to make genuine decisions, genuine stock picks, genuine asset allocation decisions, because everything is not just going to go up anymore. Now, a bear market doesn't necessarily mean you can't make money. Uh, of course, it doesn't. What it means, a proper bear market means that there are opportunities to make money, but you can't make money in absolutely everything. That's all it means. It's not necessarily a bad thing. And of course, if we are long-term investors, we should be thrilled to see stock prices coming down and all asset prices coming down, because if we believe, uh, which I think we all do, that the most important factor in the returns that you will make in the future from an asset is what you paid for it in the first place, mm -hmm. the less you pay for it, the better. So, you know, we mustn't get ourselves too hysterical about the normalization of monetary policy leading to a normalization of valuations in the stock market. This is not a bad thing necessarily and one of the areas of value that you think could really emerge in 2019 is the brexit battered uk well absolutely i mean sterling is cheap look at it on the big mac index and it's one of the cheapest currencies out there big mac index being you know how much does a does a mcdonald's cost in every currency and the market is cheap as well. And this is, it's a very emotional issue, you know, people pulling money out of the UK because they are worried about Brexit. But of course, they're not just worried about Brexit. They're also worried about Brexit chaos leading to a Corbyn, Corbyn government. So there's two stages of, of frantic worry here. And I suspect that a, a Corbyn government, government is more worrying for equity investors, perhaps, than, than Brexit is. But nonetheless, whatever people are worrying about, they are pushing down UK equity prices well below 
equity prices elsewhere. So you're seeing very, very low levels of investor confidence. There's a Halgrove Lansdowne Investor Confidence Index that I was looking at, and I mentioned in the column, but it only goes back 10 years. Uh, so, you know, maybe it's not at its bottom yet. It's at uh, 52, 10-year average being 94. So low, but maybe it'll go lower. Who knows? And uh, anyone who's looking property at valuations is telling us that uh, UK equities may be something in the region of 30% cheaper than they should be relative to other markets, which doesn't mean they won't go down further because other markets might come down further. But the key thing is that we have an excellent yield. The UK market as a whole is yielding just under 5%. Not all those dividends are going to last. Of course, some of them are going to fall. But even so, that's a great yield relative to the rest of the world. So while you sit around and wait for your value buys in the UK to come good, at least you're getting paid for it. And I should mention that in this weekend's edition of FT Money, uh, Mm. we're hearing more from you in the form of our annual investment outlook debate for 2019. Now, a couple of of, uh, cheeky acronyms uh, for listeners at home. We talk a lot about FOMO, the fear of missing out, um, versus FOML, the fear of losing money, um, (laughs) because one of the chief concerns of people in the room was, is this gigantic 30-year bull run essentially in stocks now going to come to an end with the turn that we're seeing in the bond market or could there be one last hurrah? Oh, well, we did talk about that, didn't we? There's always a chance of one last hurrah. But uh, should there be a last hurrah, this is probably a good time to sell rather than a good time to buy more. So, uh, you know, who knows? It's entirely possible that if we get from the Fed the suggestion that rates aren't going to rise as much as one previously thought or that things are going to soften on the monetary front, then you may well get one last bite at the cherry of this great bull market. Overall, I don't think there is any doubt that this huge market of the last 30 years, and in particular of the QE driven last 10 years, is beginning to turn. You know, lots of things are turning at the moment. It's not just economics, it's not just markets, it's politics as well. We are this, you know, 2017, 18, 19, 20, I think are really going to be, or have been, and are going to continue to be very exciting years, both economically, financially, and politically. Not always in a good way, by the way. Exciting doesn't necessarily mean good, but they're fascinating years where we're seeing the, the, the pendulum swinging. Uh, from one extreme to another extreme. History moves slowly. It'll take a few years, but I think it's a really fascinating time. Well, thanks very much there to Merrin Somerset-Webb, our marvellous FT Money columnist. You can read this week's column from Merrin, which offers something different, recommendations of Christmas books to buy investors. There's still a few days to go. And you can also read the full write-up of the 2019 investment debate I was just referring to online at ft.com slash money. UK investors are notorious for their home bias, investing in companies listed on the UK stock market. But frankly, can you blame us, given how international the FTSE 100 index has become? For much of this year, holding the index, perhaps in the form of a cheap tracker fund, has been one way of trying to hedge against sterling weakness thanks to the currency translation effect on those foreign-earned dividends. But now, wider global market worries are weighing on the FTSE 100, and here to talk us through some of these ideas is Russ Mould, the Investment Director at AJ Bell. Hello, Welcome, Claire. Russ. Well, it's great to have you no, on the podcast. But sadly, a bit of a torrid year for the FTSE yeah, 100. I'm not the bearer of the best tidings, necessarily. No, FTSE 100 down around 13% for the year now. Multiple reasons. You mentioned global economic worries being a very, very big one, whether you equate that with Trump trade and tariffs or whether you equate it with fears over central bank policy being tightened too quickly and putting the the crimps on the global economy. 
and I will mention Brexit once there because it is a concern. The UK has actually been the worst major geographic performing region since the June referendum in, in, in 2016. So whatever your opinions on Brexit, whether it be good, bad or indifferent, I'm not expressing any on behalf of myself, my employer or the Financial Times, it has, for the moment at least, been weighing on UK equity performance, it seems. Well, if we delve a little into the detail of um, the top risers and fallers on the FTSE 100, it certainly shows a very mixed picture. I mean, do you want to tell us what the number one stock on the FTSE 100 is? Because I feel it's a company that many of our listeners will appreciate. It's Ocado, and I, I'm very, I'm a long-standing Ocado customer of some 10 or 12 years, and I love it because they've barely made a profit, so they're subsidising my dinner as far as I'm concerned. So <laughs> I'm actually, I'm in love with Ocado. But in terms of the current index constituents, it's up 95% for the year. The slight wrinkle is it only came into the index in June. Yeah. When it was, so if you want to go back to the best performer in the index from January... It's actually Sky, which was acquired by Comcast in that megabucks deal back in the autumn. That finished the year up 70%. GKN, no longer in the index because the Melrose bid, that's up 51%. So they're actually the best two from the start of the year. But from where we are now, the best performers are Ricardo, Evraz, and, and actually Pearson, the former owner of the, this August newspaper. No less, yes, I'm sure there are many colleagues who have still held on to their residual Pearson shareholdings who will be pleased about that. But we should also mention the biggest losers. Uh, yes, in the current index, it's, it's British American Tobacco, down 49% after a shocking year. The worst overall, if you go back to the Saturday, is actually MediClinic, which is no longer in the index. That fell 51, as trading didn't turn around as quickly as hoped in Switzerland, remained weak in South Africa, and it was it was tarred with the emerging markets brush. Other big followers were Microfocus, Standard Life Aberdeen, acquisition concerns, I guess, there in terms of have they done the right thing. And all the asset managers have uh, all been fairly in, rubbish. In, yeah. They've had a horrid year, to be fair, yeah. And um, another weak performer has been Fresnillo, Again, partly tied with emerging markets and concerns over what the new president, um, Mr Labrador, is going to get up to. Well, thanks for that summary. So let's have a look now at the FTSE 250. Now, as I said earlier, the FTSE 100 generally has performed better when sterling has been thumped and the FTSE 250 which has got more domestic facing exposure especially the retailers has been the one that has been dragged down more so overall the worst performer was in fact Super a retailer dry. yes mm. down 77 percent which i'm sure is a source of great pain to julian dunkerton the former ceo who still owns quite a lot of the shares and he's i think looking to, to try and come back i believe isn't he so well this is the problem with stocks that have a very charismatic chief executive who when they leave the business or take a step back things can it, it can be big, i mean another one in the FTSE 100 one of the worst performers has been wpp where sir martin sorrell was pushed out left however you want to phrase it back in back, back in the spring and we, we it is easy for us all to buy into the cult of the chief executive officer you know the company that i work for his name's on the door his name is the name of the company so but but it, it it's something we need to be careful that the ceo can't do everything mm. they are one but what they do do when they're doing their job well, is they set the tone and the culture and they allocate capital. What's That's what they're there to do. What they can't do is absolutely everything. So they do have to learn to delegate. But if there is one person who is seen as... Certainly, if you look over time, you do have to be careful if there's one person within a firm who seems to be particularly dominant managerial or cr- creative force, WPP being a great example. Going back 10 years, RBS, perhaps you could argue, being another one. Mm, Fred the Shred. So super dry, the worst performer in the 250 mm. then, down 77%. But... What are the other stinkers? The other stinkers, um, the well, I guess we could throw Carillion in as being the ultimate stinker because that was in the 250 at the start of the year and it went to zero. So I suppose you could argue that that was the worst. And actually some of the other big losers are Kia and Capita. So the support services after effects continue to rumble on. I should say that Bunzel, a support services, is one of the best FTSE 100 performers. So support services doesn't mm. have to be all bad or of a different type. Oh, the shocker, Jupiter, 
fund management company. So again, we, t- we talked about that. Uh, and Thomas Cook down ne- lost nearly three quarters of its value this year after multiple profit warnings and, and difficulty. There's again, with you could argue with perhaps a high profile CEO, Mr. Frank Hauser. And as for the winners on the FTSE 250... Hikma up 67%, uh, went through a very difficult period a couple of years ago, but there seems to be gathering confidence that its its pipeline is filling up nicely again and sales growth looks to have started to, to start. Plus 500, I guess, has come through a bit of a regulatory storm and, and uh, I guess is possibly a beneficiary of what market volatility we've seen this year. And another bid company, Jardine Light Thompson, which got a bid from... Um, Marsh and McLennan of America, about a £4 billion bid. So that was a that was a, another bid story that if you pick the right ones, you did manage to, to cash out this year. Yeah, so again, showing us that M&A really has been one of the biggest drivers I mean, for as, stock as picking you, investors. As you would perhaps expect, with sterling being weak, if you're an overseas asset buyer, you, you would perhaps look at the UK mm-hmm. and think, well, I've got a cheap currency, a stock market that's lagged horribly over the last 18 to 24 months. You would kind of like to think there'd be some value here, but whether current political concerns or other are putting people off from nipping but you have seen you know shire's been bid for smurfit kappa there was a failed bid hammerson there was a failed bid successful bid sky gk so people have definitely sniffed around and do see somebody seems to think there's a bit of value here so holding that thought i know it's impossible to make predictions about the year ahead with all the oh, brexit shucks. chaos um, which is uh, you know the country seems to be falling around about our ears at the moment but how do you think 2019 could turn out for i mean UK the, the one thing that interests me and it, and it caught my eye it was a quote in your paper and somebody described the uk as uninvestable which immediately makes me think I should be really, really interested in this. Because, you know, the time of greatest pessimism, the darkest hour tends to come before the dawn. So you can argue this pound is undervalued. Economists keep telling you it is. If you think that analyst estimates are even vaguely credible with the UK, or the FTSE 100 on about 11 times earnings with a yield of just under 5%, you kind of have to think that it's cheap. You kind of have to think that it's unloved. And so it might not take a vast amount to surprise on the upside next year. So If the US starts to weaken, it's going to be very difficult for the UK to go up. But I can see the UK doing an awful lot better on a relative basis than it has done in the past two or three years. And with an even vaguely fair wind, I can see it surprising on the upside just because it's so universally disliked. Well, thank you very much there to Russ Mould. We'll definitely get you back on the podcast uh, next year in 2019. If you would like to read more about this... FT Money this weekend has an article on the FTSE 100 and 250 runners and riders and our investment outlook for 2019, featuring predictions from Marion Somerset Webb, who you heard from earlier, plus Richard Buxton of Marion Global Investors and Mike McKenzie of This Parish. You can read those online now if you turn to ft.com slash money. If you have a dispute with a company... Is it better to complain to the Ombudsman or should you proceed straight to the small claims court? This is a dilemma that Lindsay Cook, our money mentor columnist, has been covering this year. And her latest column relays the personal experiences of canny FT money readers who have said the famous words, I'll see you in court. She joins me now in the studio. Welcome, Lindsay. Good morning. So increasingly... People are turning to the small claims court to resolve their disputes. Yes, I've been surprised. I've had quite a number of letters from people who've been disappointed with ombudsman services uh, because they've been turned down. And then I started looking and the best response is the financial ombudsman service that a third of people win their cases. And quite a few people feel they start with the ombudsman and they think, I have right on my side. I'm not going to let this go. And they find out that they can um, take a case to the small claims court quite easily. And there is a higher success rate than there is with most of the ombudsman services. Now, I see the ombudsman services as a dry run, unless they're one of the ones that take a year to see your case through. But um, it 
we've had lots and lots of emails and correspondence from people about their successes in the small claims court. And before we go into some of the some of the detail of the successes, which frankly um, did make me chuckle when I read it last weekend. The actual process of going to court, you would think, oh, it's a nightmare, I've got to pay for a solicitor, fill in endless paperwork. Actually, small claims court is a doddle. Yes, don't need a solicitor. Online claims start at £25, paper ones at £35, and that's for claims up to £300, and then they increase with the size of the claim. If it is small claims, it has to be under £10,000. There is a similar hearing fee if it does reach the court, but the vast majority are resolved without reaching the court. People put a claim in, companies don't want to be dragged through the court and and it look as if they can't afford something. It may be that a, a minor employee or minion has decided something that is wrong and um, they say, oh no, we should be doing that. And an awful lot of people get a very quick turnaround. Yeah, well, I could imagine lots of companies just don't have the, the capacity to, to pursue this, these claims, so they just pay to make them go away. Let's talk now about a wonderful FT Money reader, Benjamin Damazer, who wrote into you after claiming that he's made 19 successful claims through the Small Claims Court this year. Um, and in your column last week, you related some of these. So tell us about the accident with his trousers. They weren't all claims this year, but the accident with his trousers was he was travelling on a train and... And the steward pouring his coffee poured it badly and it went all over his trousers and the steward said, oh, company will pay for that, sir. Here's who you contact. So he contacted them and he heard nothing. And so he thought, if the steward hadn't said that, I'd probably just put it down to nothing. But now I'm talking with head office, now I'm cross. So he pursued them and they just ignored him. So he put a claim in and he ended up, it was decided that he should they should pay for new trousers and he got and he got his um, feedback. His better one was when he was parking in a hotel that he stayed at, and they clamped his car. And he had business meetings. He had to get his son to school or something else. And so he used taxes, kept the receipts. They ignored him. Took it to court. The court found in his favour, and he was going to get two hundred and fifty pounds. They ignored it. So he put a bailiff onto the hotel. I love this. (laughs) And the bailiff arrived during one of this summer's World Cup games and started dismantling the television. They found the cash straight away, which was the cash for what he was claiming, his fees and expenses, and he got that in a couple of days. Well, fantastic. And if you're listening, Mr Damazer, thank you so much for sending in your stories, which have provided much mirth and cheer in the Brexit-battered FT office. But, Lindsay, another example that you used in your column was Claire MacDonald. Now, her neighbour was doing something that I know many of us dread, a basement dig-down. And this caused her yeah. considerable distress. Yeah, she she had a party wall agreement, uh, as did a couple of her other neighbours, and this work was loud and noisy, but it damaged her sitting room. Uh, not structural damage, cracks in walls, so it wasn't to the standards that she wanted. So she um, tried to talk to the neighbour, and um, he said, oh, get a solicitor, do it through the party wall. And she found out that was likely to cost her up to 15000 <sighs> So she um, put in a claim online through the small claims court and she printed it off and gave it to him. Next morning, she had a cheque for the £3,000 she was asking for. Now, 
I think she lives in a nice house because I think it would cost me less than that to decorate. Well, I was going to say, room. what was she using? Bloody gold leaf? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, some of our readers went, have said, 3000 Good grief, you can buy a house for that in Wigan. But others have said, <laughs> others have said, oh, no, no, in south-west London, that's quite a modest amount. Yeah, so use larks' tongues to, uh, <laughs> to pay for their walls in South London. Well, thank you very much there to Lindsay Cook, our money mentor columnist. You can read her column online now at ft.com slash money. And don't forget, we always want to hear about dilemmas that you may be fighting with a particular company, you can get in touch with Lindsay on her dedicated FT email address, which is money.mentor at ft.com. Or if you want to speak to one of the other experts at FT Money, our general email address is money at ft.com. We're taking a Christmas break for our sins, so we'll be back with the next podcast on Thursday the 3rd of January with a specially themed podcast all about what financial New Year's resolutions we are all making. But you still have time to tell us about yours. If you go to ft.com slash new year, there's a short form that you can fill in and we may even use your comments on the next podcast. But for now, we wish all of our readers a very merry Christmas and a profitable new year in 2019. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.